I'm seeing more and more people who skipped the being like a fully digital nomad. So what, especially through the pandemic, now I have friends who uh, uh, are able to go remote. And so they have their apartments, but then for like three to six months a year, they're going to travel and they're going to spend like one month in Lisbon and they're going to then go to like a charisma retreat and then they're going to do something else and then they're going to come back. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 149 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Now, I am so excited because today on the podcast, I'm joined by my friends Mark Forster Algus, the founder of Charisma Living, and Guy Perdrix the director of CoLive, which is a non-profit association of co-living professionals. Mark and Guy were both speakers at the CoLive Summit, which took place last month in Bonsko, Bulgaria, and they joined me on the podcast to share with us their biggest takeaways from that event. We talk about the trends they're seeing in co-living post-COVID and how we can expect this to affect the future of living. We also discuss the different ways in which the hospitality industry and home ownership could change as more and more people start working remotely and embark on the digital nomad lifestyle. If you enjoy this episode, share it on social media, share it with a friend that you think might like it, and if you haven't done so already, consider leaving a review. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for spending some of your time with me today. I don't take that lightly, and I'm so excited to have you as a listener and would super, super appreciate uh, you sharing this episode or leaving a review if you haven't done so already. That does wonders in helping grow this podcast. So thank you so much uh, ahead of time if you decide to do so. I also plug this every single episode, but if you haven't done so yet, you really should subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider. Every Monday morning or uh, Tuesday as it was this week because it was Memorial Day in the U.S. and I decided to wait an extra day to publish the podcast, uh, the newsletter. But most of the most weeks, every Monday morning, I send out an email that will quickly summarize all the most important things you need to know from the remote work and digital nomad industry so you're always up to speed. It's really quick. And it's a super fun read that always gets really high reviews. So I am sure you would absolutely love it. For example, this week, one of the cool articles that I shared in the newsletter was a Washington Post article that talks about how to effectively work from home with your family. Because I don't know about you guys, but I now routinely find myself working from my parents' house or even my parents-in-law's house. And while I love having the time with all of them and getting to see them uh, when I'm in the country, it can make focusing way more difficult. And this article had some really great tips about how to actually manage that. And one of the tips that I really, really liked that I just wanted to share on the podcast today was actually a case study of sorts in which a girl made a paper sign that she sort of folded like a taco, if you can imagine that. And on one side uh, of the piece of paper, it said on a deadline. And on the other side, it said something of the sort of like 
working, but you can talk to me. And she would flip it based on which one that she felt like she was more aligned with. So if she was really, really busy and she was really focused and she didn't want anybody to speak with her, she would just set it up so that it said on a deadline so her family members knew not to bother her. But if she was working and still focused, but it was okay for them to approach her and ask something, then she would flip it to saying, working, but you can talk with me, which is such a great idea because this idea of working remotely from home can make it really difficult. And you know, when can I approach this person and talk to them or do I have to constantly be ignoring them? And then if I do ignore them and never speak to them, what is the benefit of them being at home instead of being at the office? So I thought this was really, really cool. And one more thing that I shared this week in the newsletter, which I wanted to share with you uh, in a section that we do every week called a gear spotlight uh, was, I don't know if you've heard of this before. I had never heard of it before, but it's called a crystal deodorant. And what that is, is a deodorant that uses a special type of salt crystal instead of whatever normal deodorants are made of. And it has some really great benefits like it does, it's very good for your skin supposedly. Um, you know, it obviously neutralizes the smell uh, that you might have BO-wise. But one of the really big benefits is that it doesn't have any sort of uh, ability to stain your clothes because it's just this crystallized salt type thing. So it neutralizes your BO, but it doesn't stain or affect your clothing in any way like some other deodorants might do that. And if you're wondering, Miko, that sounds cool, but like why are you sharing deodorants on this newsletter about remote work and the digital nomad lifestyle? It's because of this. One regular-sized salt crystal deodorant, whatever it is, which you can find on Amazon, by the way, can last up to a year and a half or more. So think about this when you're traveling. I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but you you leave on your trip with a deodorant, and then somewhere in the middle of your trip, you run out, and you have to go and figure out what deodorant is the good one wherever you are in the world. You know, you have to like go to different stores and figure out which stores in that country sell deodorant, which ones have a good selection so that you're not just picking whatever the hell they're selling there that might be shit and bad for you. So this is just one thing that you don't have to think about, one extra thing that you don't have to think about anymore. You just buy one of these and you don't really have to worry about it for the next year, year and a half. It's easy to travel with because it's not a liquid. It's not some sort of gel. It's this sort of crystal. So I thought this was really, really cool. And it was something that I shared in this week's newsletter. So if this sounds interesting, if you'd like to get more great content and coverage just like that, head on over to thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider and sign up. It's completely free and I never ever send out any sort of spam. All you're going to get is a Monday morning email with some of the best content out there related to remote work and the digital nomad world. But all right, you guys, this has been a really long introduction. So Without further ado, let's jump into this awesome conversation with Mark Forster, Algis, and Guy Perdrix. All right, Mark, Guy, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you guys on here. Uh, I'm going to kind of let you guys take a turn to introduce yourself for uh, people who don't know you. But Mark, uh, you're the founder of Charisma Co-Living. Uh, we've talked uh, a, a few times online. Uh, tell people who may not be familiar with Charisma, what is it? Uh, and when did you get started with that? 
Hey, first of all, thank you so much, Mitko. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, really thankful. Uh, and so Charisma, what is uh, Charisma? Charisma is a co-living brand for, uh, we call them rebellious creators. Uh, and we basically create creator houses around the world, really focused around accelerating each other in all areas of life, while also uh, living life to the fullest. Perfect. And Guy, uh, you're the director of CoLive. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, CoLive as a brand, what it's there for? And then also, how did you get started in, in remote work? I know that you and I have been remote for almost as long. It's, it's rare that I run into people who have been in this for as long as I have. But uh, what is uh, what is CoLive? And then how did you get started in the space? Like, What made you get passionate about remote work? Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, they're closely related. So CoLive is a uh, global association that represents calling professionals. So I joined CoLive around two and a half, three years ago. And at that time, CoLive was um, more or less a bit stagnant. There was nothing much happening. Uh, and when I came in, actually, CoLive sponsored me to do a world tour to visit co-living spaces and write a book about that. So that was kind of my entry point into CoLive, and, and today CoLive hosts a lot of events. We create like resources and, and mostly like to, to help the CoLiving industry. And, um, and so that kind of brings me back to, it's uh, six years ago from now. Uh, I was uh, in the startup scene in Paris and, and London, and I just had like a complete meltdown, a quarter life crisis, whatever you want to call it. I was 25 at the time. Uh, and that led me to ch making a few decisions in my life, including becoming nomadic and selling all of my belongings and becoming a minimalist. And it's actually by becoming a nomad that I would go to cities and open up pop-up co-living spaces. So that's a whole entry, but there's been like basically breakdown, life change, becoming a nomad. And nomad allowed me to create co-living, which then led me to run co-live today. I'm curious, Guy, because I, I mean... I relate to that a lot because before I got involved in the nomad space, I was also working on startups in the US. And for me, one of the things that really clicked was when I first heard the term digital nomad. And it was almost mm. like Pandora's box where I was like, oh, this is what I wanted, right? Like this is the freedom I was looking for. I just didn't know that there was a term. I didn't know that it existed. Was it similar for you where you kind of realized that this lifestyle was a thing and so you you shifted over to it or like or was that not even something like a lifestyle that you were looking for? Yeah, no, it, it completely was a lifestyle I was looking for um, and it was very much influenced by one of my best friends uh, who has been a nomad like a couple of years before me. His name is Renat. He might show up in a, in a few other stories today. Uh, and Mark and I, uh, Mark knows him, like we spent a, a little time together, which is fun. But, um, but like truth is, so it's been inspired by some people, including this friend. Um, but I didn't know for myself really why I wanted to become a nomad. Um, and this is where actually like, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just share a quick, um, story. So this, this guy, Renat introduced me to another guy called Chase, uh, who's actually just arrived in Lisbon and is staying here for a few days. And so Chase at the time and I, we didn't know each other. And so I was telling him, it was like six years ago. And I told him like, hey, Chase, in four days, I'm quitting my job because I want freedom. And then he looks at me through Skype and he's like, you know, bullshit. I'm like, what, what do you mean bullshit? And he's like, freedom doesn't exist. Freedom is just a vacuum that you can fill with something meaningful. What do you want to fill it with? And, and that led me to think for the first time, why do I even want to be nomadic? You know, what does freedom mean to me? Uh, and to me at the time, it was having the freedom to be of the people you love. Um, but then there's so many more freedoms behind that, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's important to figure out what this freedom means to you when, when you want to become location independent. 
That's how you know you're an OG, by the way, when you say that you were talking with people online through Skype, not through Zoom. That's like a, that's like a, not like a generational <laughs> divide, but it's something that I've noticed people who've been doing it for a while, are like Skype was like the first thing. And then, you know, it was before Zoom. But Mark, I'm curious for you, how did you, like, why do this? Like, why focus on co-living? Why start Charisma? Like, what made you interested in this whole world? Yeah, by the way, so poetic, Guy. I love your, I always love your stories. Uh, for me, in my case, I think it, the, the seed was planted uh, during my college days, I would say. Uh, I have always been this guy who can never seem to sit still. I just wanted to do things differently. I wanted to travel while we we're supposed to do internships and all these different things. Uh, and so in um, my third year of college, I took, uh, I did my internship in Brazil. Uh, I loved the experience of being abroad so much that I decided to take the following semester off. Uh, and to go to Australia and Southeast Asia for a whole semester. I had enough credits to do it. And I just remember coming back uh, to Barcelona, my dad picking me up and me just saying, Dad, like, I, I, I need to take a sabbatical after college. Like, I need to continue this. Um, and so not much time after that, I, half a year or up, almost a year, that's when really COVID started. And Suddenly, with so much time, I really started questioning, you know, why I wanted these things that were still kind of growing on me. And I realized that at the core, it was really, sure, the freedom, but the freedom to pick who I wanted to be with and all the people I was meeting along the way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was not just, you know, sharing these amazing stories and, and memories with these people, but really growing so much you know I, I was always this bad student I, I didn't think I was gonna do big things in life or absolutely anything but you know when I started meeting these people I felt like this spectrum of perspectives was opened up to me and suddenly I was meeting people that showed me what really was possible and the best part about that was that it was kind of this exchange right of like I'm giving you a piece of myself you you give me one back sometimes maybe unconsciously right uh, and so with COVID, I really started thinking, you know, uh, okay, I, I love this. I love people. I love traveling. I love experiences. I love to do something within it. And my first hypothesis was kind of like, okay, I'd love to do something and call it experiential real estate and travel and stuff like that. And just after a lot of uh, yeah, researching and me, myself, working from home, I came across co-living. Uh, and for me, I had kind of that same aha moment. Like I felt like I had just won the lottery, not, not from the financial perspective, but kind of thinking like, holy shit, this just brings in everything I was really dreaming about, especially the, the personal development aspect as well. Uh, and so once co-living came into my way, uh, there was no, no going back. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I think that's a perfect segue into talking about CoLive, uh, which was the event that just took place in Bonsko uh, last month. And I'm super, super excited to hear what you guys learned from that event uh, and sort of what does the future look like in terms of co-living. But first, Guy, as somebody from Bulgaria, I have to ask you, why did you decide to, to run CoLive <laughs> as an event in Bonsko? All right, I'm, uh, I was about to make a joke and scream into the microphone. Last time, man, last time. No, I'm kidding. It was great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why we chose uh, Bulgaria Bansko, usually we hosted it in Paris. And this year we hosted it there because um, Matthias from co-working Bansko, which is a whole other organization, 
was organizing a two-day conference around co-living. So we, as the co-live team, uh, were interested in going either way. And then we decided to just host a summit there. Um, and yeah, and so we hosted a virtual format this time, similar to last year's. We had 30 people, including Mark and some other speakers, at these like there physically. And then most of the people were with us online. Yeah, Matthias has been on the podcast before, and one of the things I always joke about is, as somebody who grew up in Bulgaria, I've known Bonsko my entire life, and if you had asked me if, uh, you know, when I was 10 years old, if Bonsko was going to be the most popping place in the world, I would have... I would have never taken that bet. Uh, I would have shorted that all day. But you know they've done an incredible they've done an incredible job over there. Uh, Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, I'm curious, what were like some of your biggest takeaways? Like when you consider the entire event there uh, and all the speakers and all the different presentations, what were maybe like your your top three? biggest takeaways in terms of, of co-living and where that's going and, and where just in general co-living, co-working is headed? So uh, to start with, uh, I was speaking uh, at the co-live summit. Uh, I was sharing about the pop-up model specifically, which is basically some, you know, sh short-term experience, um, short-term co-living. Basically, we rent out properties ranging from one week to maybe even a couple of months without having like a uh, fixed location. Um, and so I was kind of sharing how I used that model to really kick off my co-living brand with less risk, faster, um, uh, and also use it to really learn all these different things. And I also shared all the things I wish I would have known. So the, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because for the first half of the summit, I was just kind of like in my own space, right? Just thinking about, yeah, maybe not being the most present, but I did definitely have uh, a few takeaways. The first one is I realized how much growth and how early we are still, uh, we still are in the co-living journey, right? I mean, uh, Guy and the whole co-live team did an absolutely amazing job. And still there was only perhaps, I don't know, in, in the hundreds kinds of people really like, and the people that really are there full on, loving the whole co-living thing. What I'm trying to say with this is that this is something that I think is really going to become as big as hustles. You know, everyone knows about hustles. Everyone knows hustles around the corner. There's hustles all over the place. I think co-living is going to be something very close to that. And just being in that, you know, very intimate group of 30 speakers, of course, is maybe it has also to do with the fact that maybe it was in Bulgaria or whatever reason, I still had this feeling that, you know, I kind of knew most of the people in the industry. I knew most of the people that were still speaking. I still had a feeling like there's still so many more people that are going to be joining this overall space. Mm. Uh, and by the way, like Kolev and Guy specifically did an absolutely amazing job at facilitating the overall experience, getting amazing people on board. Uh, so real props to you. Um, another thing that makes me really bullish on the overall co-living industry, um, which you know leads me maybe also to another point, is how much passion there is in this overall space. Like the people here, like some of them may not even – like they just want to have their communities. They don't care so much about, you know, scaling, about making so much money. They just want to really be in community. 
Uh, and actually, this leads to my third takeaway is that I kind of realized, and I, I posted about this on LinkedIn, I felt, and this is my personal opinion, I felt like there was a gap. I feel like there is a gap from the operator's point of view in the middle, having on one side, you know, these more passion projects, these community-oriented co-living brands, and on the other side of the spectrum, these much more real estate, scalability-oriented people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what you see on the, on the business side is that these people are just scaling these properties like common habit, like really to the next level, but they're starting with the real estate and then they try to add the community aspect to it, not very successfully in my opinion. And then you have the other ones that just put so much emphasis on the community um, and don't focus so much on scaling. And while I think you know we're so early and that works for now, I think as more players start entering the space and it becomes more competitive, you know, I think some of these more passion projects are really going to have a harder time to compete uh, in general. Yeah, you know, you talk about how small the co-living space feels, and I I can only imagine because even the broader remote work, uh, you know, digital nomad space, which is, you know, way bigger, still feels very, very small. Like the same way that you said that you know that you knew everybody that was there as a speaker, like I feel very much the same when like I see like an event going on or I go and attend an event. is like I know most of the people there, which just says like, we're so much still in the infancy stage of this entire mm. movement, uh, even the broader movement of remote work, right? Like to us in our bubble, it might seem like, you know, like this is obviously the entire world, 100%. but it's still, we're still like a baby as as an industry. Guy, I want to turn it over to you because Mark brought up something very interesting that I want to get your opinion on. And, and you kind of, Mark, you kind of talked about these different types of co-livings, right? And this is something that I've noticed as well, where you have something like charisma, right? Which is like an organized, we're all going to come together for a month and we're going to live in this one house, which is a type of co-living. Uh, you know, with some sort of program perhaps in the background as well. While on the other hand, you have co-living brands like a Selena, for example, right? So these are two different types of co-living. Uh, I'm curious, Guy, about your you know point of view uh, as somebody who's been involved in the co-living space. Are there any other types of co-living? Like, can we kind of create like type one, type two, type three in terms of co-living? Like what do you see as the breakup and the separation in the co-living space? Hmm. Okay. That's um that's a good question, you know, because so co-living at this point is kind of like hospitality. It doesn't mean anything. Hmm. You know, so you this when you when you type co-living, the experiences you will get are completely different. You will find on one side, like shared flats, kind of in traditional, normal, like big cities like London and Berlin that have nothing fancy, a part of you being able to book online. Uh, and then you'll find some, so I guess that's 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 kind of the basic co-living, just like flat sharing. Um, and then what you're seeing is co-living being used. So second category would be co-living being used really in like urban environments. Um, so there's more and more co-living spaces being developed uh, where you as a resident have your unit, you have your 30 square meters or 20 square meters, and then on top of that, you have a lot of like common spaces and lounges, et cetera. The collective was the first one doing this, but there's a, especially right now, a lot of them being built. Uh, in France itself, there's 10 developers right now working on co-living projects. So I think in two, three years, you're going to see a lot of them popping up, yeah. 
And, and, and just to interrupt you here, because I read an article about this recently that I shared in my newsletter. When you're describing that specific type, that's more of like an answer to the rising cost of housing, correct? Like it's not necessarily travel related. It, it can be more like it's very expensive to live in a city like San Francisco, for example. So, you know, buying like a room or I read this one in San Francisco where it's like, a, a tube with a bed in it for like a hundred dollars uh-huh. a month, which was insane. But is that kind of what your what that second type is? Yeah, um, I would say actually the, the second time is, is is mostly for flexibility. So uh, when you look at most co living offerings, there are some, especially in California, where it's really super high real estate, and where you find, for example, pods uh, and people being able to live like really affordably. But when you look at other major cities, New York, London, Paris, Berlin, the pricing is not cheaper at a co-living. So people don't move in there because they can't afford their own studio. They move in there because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, and literally, it's the easiest way for you to uh, you know, land in a new city, find housing super rapidly without having to go through agencies and like all of the local hustle. Uh, and also being able to then have this like safety net for the first six months or nine months or 12 months of your journey in that city and being able to meet your future roommates. So I think like the need is coming more from, uh, it's, it's just hard to get good real estate, uh, and especially in big cities. And so when you have solutions like this, that are very flexible and you can literally just pay two months of rent and you move in, you don't have any background checks and whatever, it's way easier and gives you access to housing. Which means that right now these second tiers of co-living are not really being built to tackle housing affordability. It's going to remain in the same amount, or if not higher, than housing costs today. Um, and so then you have other types, like third type would be more of the travelers or remote co-living. And here too, you could differentiate between those that are really they're long-term, like for example, Sun & Co. that's been there for like years and everybody knows, and you probably have the diehard fans who come in twice a year. And then more like pop-up co-living spaces, like for example, Charisma is. Um, so yeah, these would be kind of like big categories. So I guess big differentiations, we can talk about urban versus rural, uh, but especially I think we can talk like long-term residential versus more short-term and experience-based which is usually what more of these like remote cooling spaces also promote. Mainly, I would say the main four benefits that co-livings have, and it, this doesn't mean that all of them have all four, they all just kind of pick their, their owns, uh, but the main four ones are affordability in, in some of them, but we already talked about that some of them focus on other things, uh, flexibility, uh, like Dee mentioned, uh, then especially also the, the convenience, you know, you, you get there, uh, everything is furnished. I mean, when I moved to, uh, from Dublin to the Algarve, you know, I had to buy a new silverware. I had to get, like, get the, the place pretty, uh, get some extra furniture, all these different things. You don't have to do it. Like, everything is fully furnished. Uh, you pay one bill. You don't have to worry about utilities and all these different things. Uh, and then the fourth one is the community aspect. And I, I just want to, uh, Guy, I just want to like double check here. So when you're talking about these more long-term places, are we talking about people who are going and living in a specific location where it's like, hey, I live full-time out of this co-living space in, in Lisbon, for example, or is it something like where they are jumping from place to place, right? So maybe a, a co-living brand has a, a location in Lisbon and Berlin and and you know Athens, for example, is, and mm. they're jumping from place to place. Is it like that, or do you see people 
who are living specifically in that one location, but just sharing the space with others? So uh, I'd say it's mostly in that location. So there, there are a few brands like for digital nomads, like, you, you know, like outside, for example, it's been like one of the, the first and big ones that has like 30 locations or even Selena, they want to enter the co-living game with like having these like uh, monthly, like you can pay monthly and have like, and go to like three Selenas in certain areas. Um, but yeah, the majority of co-living is, is residential as people just moving in there for like no, 12 months and, and then moving out afterwards and because they found their flat in the city or maybe potentially moving somewhere else. Um, but it's, it's not attracting the remote type of crowd uh, because it's also not really a remote offering. Uh, but I know that, for example, I was, I was in the graduation of a co-living space of like 100 units in the south of France. And they had like a few people that were location dependent. You know, they chose to just go there for a few months and, and, and then leave again because they wanted to be in this area. Um, but so it can be for location dependent, but there's very few brands that actually have a large offering. Uh, and those that do, it's usually within uh, a country, right? So common in the US, you can be in New York, but you can also go to Chicago and be all in the same lease. That's possible. But it's really hard to do that within different countries because usually also different operators have different price points and it becomes really hard to create like one flat price. And it's also what Selena has been struggling with. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a bit hard to do that. Gotcha. Uh, Guy, do you mind if I ask you to, to turn on a light somewhere in your space? Because soon we're going we're gonna to lose you in, in the darkness. But in the meantime... Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a video. That's why I'm like, sure, no problem. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, Mark, um, who do you see as most people, when, when most people who come into Charisma who are interested as a demographic, uh, who do you see coming? Is it mostly younger people? Is it mostly uh, like single or, or do, you, do you have couples coming through? Well, give me like an idea of who the demographic is. Well, you'd be surprised. I feel like it's been all ranges <laughs> starting from uh, early 20s to 45. Like, and, and I wouldn't even say that the 45s are really, you know, the the odd ones in the group. Like, not at all. We actually had one guy who's an absolute legend. He was one of the main pillars of the overall experience, I would even say. I would say, like, in terms of who was age, that? Uh, Chris Reynolds. I was wondering if you're going to say Chris. Yeah, I know Chris. I saw your pictures <laughs> on the posting, and I was like, just by the description, I'm going to guess Chris here. <laughs> Shout out to Chris. Um, and so I, I feel like it's, in terms of the age aspect, it's, I feel like, a lot of um, mentality, right? I feel like, you know, back in the day, you kind of, you you hit 30, you get married, and then suddenly you, you get into this parental vibe, so to say, you know? And I feel like now it's just, we're more casual, you know, and it's up to us to decide how we want to approach and live our life uh, at the end of the day. Um, and then apart from that, you know, I would say that the majority of people at least in my experience, in my co-living, because we do look for creators in our case, and we do have some sort of curation process as well. Most of them were entrepreneurs or self-employed, right? Some of them, I wouldn't say that many freelancers, to be honest, but there was also a lot of them like about to take the leap, really, like mm -hmm. with that hunger to really take that next step. And, and I would say that that's a lot of people. 
honestly, I saw a lot of themes of just people like really questioning their life, you know, really trying to find some meaning, trying to build something on their for their their own, yeah, for themselves. Um, and so maybe, I mean, you guys are the OGs of remote work. I don't know if this is something now that's been accelerated by, by COVID in general, right? But I really saw this, you know, especially we do a lot of masterminds. We sit down with each individual person, help them pick one specific goal, question, or challenge, right? And to really then collectively help that individual overcome that thing that that person chose. And a lot of them is like, really that career change, taking that next step, figuring out how to go about it. A lot of people are dreaming very big and they also see just like, they cannot get like, how do I even start, you know, when you think so big, but yeah, I feel like that's a conversation for another day, but just got to start slowly. Yeah. I think the, the nomadic quote unquote lifestyle ages you down a bit. Like uh, we were talking about this recently. We have a friend, Nathan, who uh, has a, a blog called Foodie Flashbacker, which is great. He's been on the podcast a few times. A very good friend of ours. But he's in his, like, early 40s. And I do not think of him as somebody who's in his early 40s. Like, you know, when we're hanging out, he could be, like, another 20-year-old. And I feel like there's something about the lifestyle. And I don't know if that's something that's going to persist in the future, actually. Or if majority of the people who are still in it still are kind of this – are coming in from it from this like traveler perspective, but it almost like feels like even people who are older are still like have young vibes, if, if that makes sense. To add on that, uh, I did a lot of uh, a big study at the beginning of my co-living journey to try to understand, you know, the different segments within the remote work community. Um, and the three main ones were kind of digital nomads, uh, which stayed in places from, you know, up to three months. Then we had the slow mats between three to 12 months, uh, approximately. Uh, and then we also called the last one more the explorer expats that stay maybe, you know, one to two years in different locations and just move around. And I would say that, you know, the more mature people were on their nomad journey, right? It doesn't have to be just a matter of age, but how long they have been on their journey, they start, you know, settling down maybe a little bit more and like picking one specific location and moving more from the digital nomad to the slow mat uh, scene. Maybe, maybe Guy is the exception here. Maybe it's because he has so much, I mean, I, I've not met as many people as you with so much energy, so much passion, so much life. And I think that's something that's required if you're going to be moving all over the place. Well, yeah. And maybe I can add something to that TMR, you know, which is, uh, I think like, I mean, Mitko, you said yourself, like being a nomad after a while can be very draining. Right. I think it can be if the lifestyle isn't, doesn't serve you anymore, you know, like why, why, why location dependent? And if you actually really want to go and hit the gym every day and follow your, your martial arts class. And so there's no point of, of constantly traveling around. You're going to actually going to fuck up what you want to do. Um, so I think it got to serve you and I'm seeing more and more people who skipped the being like a fully digital nomad. So what, especially through the pandemic, now I have friends who uh, uh, are able to go remote. And so they have their apartments, but then for like three to six months a year, they're going to travel and they're going to spend like one month in Lisbon and they're going to then go to like a charisma retreat and then they're going to do something else and then they're going to come back. And I've personally, I've kind of switched to that too. I just moved in like a week ago in an apartment here in Lisbon because for logistical reasons, I just needed a base to like, actually have my instruments. Uh, but I don't, I still feel very location independent 
because I can just jump on a flight whenever I want to and, and go somewhere for three months if I want to. And I, I can't do that because um, my work allows me to and, and I still want to. I'm going to conferences. I'm going to go see friends. I'm going to go to Madeira, to Tenerife and then to Barcelona and to blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's still happening. But I think there's like also an intermediate kind of lifestyle, which is and I don't have a name for that. Is it like a semi-nomad? Uh, what do you think? So it's so funny that we that we got to this point because I was wondering if we were get to if we're going to get to this topic on on this podcast. So one of the things that I've started noticing is you know Mark, like you talked about like a slow mat, and one of the things that I've noticed as a trend isn't necessarily traveling slowly because I definitely think that's a part of it but I've noticed people setting up home bases way more. And that doesn't necessarily mean just one home base, right? Like maybe they have like a city in Europe that they really, really like. Maybe they have a city in the Americas that they really, really like. Maybe it's like an Airbnb that they're really familiar with that they will go back to or something like that. But then they use that as a base to travel around from, right? So like, Guy, you have a place in Lisbon now that you can use as a base to go to, to Spain and to France and to, you know, wherever else around that area. But then maybe you also have a place in Mexico that you can go and put your stuff away for three months. And that allows you to travel around in the Americas. So I'm seeing a lot of people actually starting to like, whether they have already set this up or they're starting to discuss in the future, wanting to have that sort of setup. So I'm curious from your point of view, are you also seeing this? Like, does this does this resonate when I say this in terms of like having heard similar conversations? And if so, and we do think that that might be the future trend, how does co living as a living concept play into that? Gia, I'll, I'll let you answer first, and then Mark, I'll give you a chance as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, I've, I mean, even myself, I've been thinking about having like several bases you know, in different locations. And especially, I guess, when your needs change and you enter a relationship, you might have kids or you might maybe just get attached to very certain locations and have a good friend there that you just want to see over and over again. So this this relationship of, of having a base or having different bases makes a lot of sense. Um, then there's a question of, like, how to sustain it financially. Um, and this is potentially where co-living could come in. I mean, I'm not so sure about co-living in itself, uh, one thing I've been always dreaming of is like, if for example, me and my friends would all uh, like, we will all own one house in different locations and we just like swap and, and being able to like go around. Uh, but it's, and I know it's one platform or a few platforms try to do this, but it's just really hard to organize. And for co-living, I think co-living could be a way for people to, uh, get back to certain places. For example, Every time you go back to Lisbon, you go to the very specific co-living and it's going to be more personalized in a hotel because you know going to know some people. Um, but I don't know whether co-living is a solution for this. I don't think it is. Not at this point. Apart if you really find very specific communities where you have maybe like different units that they're long term and you can rent it out and come back whenever you want to. But yeah, I don't know if co-living is, is a solution to having different bases. Mark, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think? Like, have you heard similar conversations and, and how do you think co-living as a concept can, can assist in that? I think as a, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my dream, you know, like I, I always tell Guy, we've had so many conversations about this, you know, I would love to create the infrastructure for this global mobility, right? And in order to do that, 
it requires a lot of investment, a lot of patience, right? Especially if you're going like only through the real estate route. Um, but, you know, maybe a home isn't necessarily just a space, but potentially the people that are in those specific places, right? Um, if you did go to the, you know, did manage to get this global ecosystem, I think, you know, there you can kind of try out what Outside and Selena are trying to do this sort of subscription model uh, and stuff like that, uh, which is something, you know, I've been kind of dreaming about um, as well. But I think what will be needed in order to accomplish something like that is some sort of alliance potentially between different players. Uh, and so, for example, <laughs> kind of coincidence, but um, two weeks ago, uh, a few people uh, and I got together um, and, you know, just people with similar visions, with this desire to go and feel at home wherever you are in the world, right? Um, so I think they're having that maybe with some sort of co-ownership model, kind of like Guy talked about, is something that could be interesting, uh, but for me, going back to the vision I have, I just realized, okay, if I just want to do this only through spaces, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a decade or two uh, to even get there. So I think you can also do that not just through the people and maybe having some tech layer, you know, that tells you where people are in the world and stuff like that. But you can maybe also do it through uh, conferences, co-workings, experiences, trips, uh, retreats, right? Um, I don't know, maybe... Yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm just spitting here things uh, all over the place. But, you know, maybe if as a brand you want to provide that home, maybe you can just offer, you know, different experiences in different places without having to invest into the real estate and go into all that logistical hassle. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like I just threw a lot of many different things. Uh, maybe we can pick one of those and maybe go a little deeper into that. So one of the reasons, like when you mentioned – co-owning places. Guy, when you were talking about that, I was smiling, if you notice. And it's because, have you, have either of you ever heard of Tynan before? No. Can you repeat that? Tynan? T-Y-N-A-N? So, Tynan is a past guest on the podcast. I think it was episode 107. And Tynan has been doing this. He's a, an OG, OG, OG nomad. And one of the things that he's done with his friends that I think could be the future is that he has actually found, uh, he has like a small list of friends, a small group of friends that he knows have the financial means to participate in this. But what he does with them is he goes out and he finds properties all over the world, paints a picture about this property, you know, a property that's for sale, like what is the vision of this property? And then sends it to that list and says like, I'm looking to participate in the purchase of this with, with 10 of you. Who is interested? And then he'll find that list. They'll all kind of crowdsource the purchase of this property. And they essentially now have, I think, seven or eight properties all over the world, including like an apartment in Budapest, an apartment in Japan, one in Las Vegas. I think they have a house in Hawaii and they even own an island in Canada. And so what he's done with this is he's essentially created like a small pool of like, like a small closed loop like Airbnb where he participates in different properties with different groups of friends and they kind of, you know, amongst themselves decide like, you know, okay, who's got, who's going to be in this place when, and so on and so forth. And I believe that I actually could see this, you know, maybe not in 10 years, but in 20 years as, as this lifestyle enters the mainstream 
more and the availability of finding funding becomes easier. You know, maybe something that's like a little bit easier to what you see in like how easy it is to get a mortgage in the US, essentially that being a way to crowdsource these sorts of places where you can like go and have, you know, you can have 10 properties, quote unquote, all over the world that you can then share with with friends. Guy, is that kind of like what you're thinking about when you were talking about co-ownership? And, and what do you think about, I've, I call it the Tynan model now. Love it. Lo- I love the, I love that model. You know, I think oh, it's a- same. I'm, I'm amazed right now. This is insane. Yeah, no, that, that's insane. You know, it's, I guess, uh, I don't know if any, everyone could pull it off cause, uh, but, uh, I guess, you know, if you have the right network and the right people, I guess you can, um, I think co-ownership can take different forms, but generally speaking, it's really hard to create co-ownership models in real estate and there's very little incentive in doing so. Uh, developers don't want it. Um, operators don't want it either. So it's it's really, uh, you know, I, I I know and I know there's a lot of blockchain enthusiasts, um, and I'm a very I'm an enthusiast as well. But I'm still seeing that there's like so many steps to go. Because my ideal type of cornership would be, for example, uh, that you're staying as a guest in a very specific co-living space can give you cornership about, for example, the operations company or even about the space in itself if if it's the case that they own it. Or if you would stay, for example, in the, you know, in a, in a co-living space that is in, uh, in London, uh, you know, with like the amount of stay that you're staying, maybe you can, you know, get, you know, a micro ownership of that unit or of that building. Uh, or more concretely speaking, we've seen that a bit in, in Latin America, actually, it's when like you have developers that build buildings and then they sell units. So that's, that's very traditional, right? In the, in the case of, uh, of, of normal apartments, but for co-living, that's kind of new. So I guess the single, the, the simplest thing that's, that can be done right now is like building, let's say, even if it's for 15 people and basically selling it to 15 different people. Um, but I, I'd love to see models that come up where, for example, you own the more you spend time in a place, basically the more you're spending actually random. So there's a correlation and there's a high incentive for you to also stay longer. And I think I could change and make people feel way more at home and home, like, because they have ownership about it versus right now where we're renting a lot. And especially us remote nomad folks, uh, you know, we spend a lot of money on rent. I couldn't agree more with you. And actually, I don't think we, I think we're less than 10 years away from that. Um, I mean, I think Web3, uh, I mean, we can go down this road now, but... I think really reduces the transaction costs around these sort of, um, yeah, yeah, the things you can do. There's already like brands like Picasso, for example, they do like second home ownership and you basically buy, they divide each property into nine uh, pieces and basically you buy one of them, depending on how many you have, you get X amount of weeks or days, whatever that may look like. Uh, but I think with Web3, you know, on one side, you allow people, I think it reduces the transaction cost dramatically. You can reward, you know, uh, the loyalty of your people because, you know, if Guy comes to my space to Charisma all the time, right, but you only come once, I want to make sure that Guy keeps on coming and also is compensated fairly for this overall experience. So I may reward him with perhaps tokens. And I think, you know, what I love about Web3 and this ethos is that 
you reward people for their contributions in a very fair way. And at the end of the day, cool living is really about the people. The people make that space special, right? 